This is where creativity hides. Hollow out your memories until you get to the dustiest bits jammed into the corners of your spirit. Forgotten weekends, beliefs you thought were glued on tight. The way shame ignites, only dormant, never gone. How does it all fit, the wake of life? So much history spooled inside us, you wonder what the point is in all this remembering. But a tree does more than reach for the sun. It feasts on the rain, sucking it like a straw from its darkest buried roots. This is where creativity hides. Wearing the mask of your old stories, words and images, the debris of time, waiting to be stitched into art. Fair warning and full disclosure, your minister has spring fever. <laughs> Consider yourselves warned. So I'm going to start out with a, okay, I won't characterize it. Let's just call it a question. Anybody here dance wildly around the bonfire last night? Don't be afraid. I didn't either. My neighborhood association is already mad at me and, and uh, at my husband, Mike, because we have a, it's really a little sign that says hate has no home here, but they're very upset about it. I have been upset for the more than two years that we've had it up. <laughs> They've been imposing a daily fine in order to force us to take it down. We haven't paid it because we're that badass. <laughs> so I can only imagine what would happen if Mike and I set a giant with the more attractive of our neighbors. <laughs> I think that would really tick them off. <laughs> Too bad, right? I'm pretty sure developments like ours, or maybe just ours, maybe we just live in a particularly, you know, <laughs> but anyway, I'm pretty sure it wasn't designed for Beltane celebrations or, you know, for any sort of boisterous, let it all hang out kind of stuff. And it's probably too late for us to start something, maybe next year. We did try a coup with the Neighborhood Association, but we lost. It's very sad. Though some of you know, I don't generally brag about this, but I did receive a college degree from Bryn Mawr College, a school that is not known for levity and partying. It's known for its high standards, a very good history of feminism, a not so good history of racism. They worked really hard not to admit any Jewish students for many, many, many decades. And it's known for being very tough on the grades they give your students. I remember when um, when I did my college tour, a very sincere young woman said to me, you know, 
here at Bryn Mawr on Saturday night. It's okay if you don't go out. <laughs> Already, I said. We are perfectly happy to stay in and study. <laughs> and all of that being said, which I'm sure makes you want to rush out and have your nearest relatives apply to this, this wonderful school, in spite of all of this, the most cherished tradition on campus, and I checked to make sure it's still going on, is dancing around the Maypole on May Day. Now, lest you get the wrong idea, let me admit right off the bat that I actually never attended May Day celebrations while I was at Bryn Mawr because they were scheduled for 7 a.m. and I had a religious objection to getting up that early. <laughs> But I understand that many of my classmates did, and they still do. In fact, it's apparently bigger than ever. And people get up at an ungodly hour, and they thread these old ribbons around these maypoles and get rewarded with a breakfast. They probably, probably did it this morning, 10 hours ago or whenever they got up. <laughs> with a breakfast of strawberries and cream. I never went, so I don't know if anybody spiked it, but whatever. <laughs> now, it's not surprising that bread martyrs, as we called ourselves, do <laughs> the actual really fun part of Beltane celebration, which happens the night before with the aforementioned bonfires dancing and sneaking off into the bushes. <laughs> you can blame our Celtic ancestors for that. The morning maypole dancing was for people straggling back with foliage in their hair. <laughs> the thing is, I warned you, didn't I? <laughs> the thing is, no matter how seriously we take ourselves, or how much grief we might be carrying at any moment, there are times when our bodies need where we need to be connected to the earth. And this glorious time of year is one of those times. It's one of those times that, for me anyway, encourages us to actually inhabit these bodies that brought us in here this morning, that parked our cars, that accompanied our youth to their classrooms but sang together. We have survived winter. This was, it's not like the winters of our ancestors, especially during the mini ice age when, when it was not a sure thing. But this was not an easy winter to survive. Spring fever is a thing. It's not real enough yet to get its own diagnosis. <laughs> That will probably happen. But it's real enough to get its own scientific literature, which I was really happy to see as I was perusing the uh, intertubes this week. But it turns out there's a very highly trained postdoctoral fellow at uh, the, I have to read this, Virginia Institute for Psychiatric and Behavioral Genetics, who studied 500 human subjects, and this is what he learned. The more time you spend outside in the springtime, the better your mood. This is 
Keller goes on, though this was not all he determined, or I would mock him with even less mercy. <laughs> but he also determined that as the temperatures go up in summertime, our mood <laughs> correspondingly goes down. And in case you were wondering, the perfect outdoor temperature for human happiness is 72 degrees. So, <laughs> It lasts, it's going to last about a minute and a half this year. <laughs> and then we'll be... <laughs> and it's not just human happiness, it's, it's everything. It's our survival, it's our, it's our reproduction. Cue the bonfires, right? <laughs> so as I'm sure many of you know far better than I do, because you are scientists and, and I am not, we actually, as human beings, we track the seasons by measuring the length of, of, of daytime, length of the day, through this biological clock. So we have this, we, there's a pathway from our retina to this pineal gland that signals, according to the length of the day, how much melatonin to release. The longer the days, the less melatonin, the less melatonin, the more energy not lovely. There's an excuse for feeling kind of <laughs> shorter nights meaning more energy, which is good because this is planting season, isn't it? It's the season when we are all rushing out to plant things in pots or in our yards or whatever, whatever it is, making beauty. And even with all of our technology and contemporary sophistication. I almost said that without irony, but not quite. It's still true that more babies are conceived at this time of year than at any other time. Isn't it interesting how scientists and poets often arrive at the same conclusion, even if they follow different kinds of pathways? You ever hear the, the famous line from the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson who writes about, you know, in spring a young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love. The man had solid science to support him even though, you know, we should bless his sexist little heart. <laughs> so this morning my invitation to you is to think about how often do you take the time to celebrate and enjoy the miracle that is your body. A friend of my, my husband's whom I met when we were, when we were uh, just engaged, used to talk, she actually also has multiple sclerosis, and she used to talk really disparagingly of her body, and, and she used to call it just, it's the suitcase that carries me around. Have you ever heard that expression? That's unkind. Isn't it? It's not just a suitcase. It is who we are. How often do we celebrate or take the time just to revel in the sheer goodness of what our body gives to us in every moment? I mean, we do spend a fair amount of time, don't we, criticizing ourselves, criticizing how we look or feeling 
inadequate for a variety of reasons, or grieving the illnesses or the passage of time that, that take away our sense of control over our bodies. In the old celebrations of, of Beltane, and I do realize there's a Celtic pronunciation, but you don't want to hear me try it. Our ancestors celebrated fertility, abundance, fertility of the earth, the fertility of animals, our fertility as human beings. Every year was a victory over scarcity. Didn't mean that everyone made it, but some of us did. In the lands of the Fertile Crescent and even more ancient times, the, the stories of the goddess Ishtar, or Inanna, and the god Tammuz, the beautiful youth she loved. The stories of every year, the cycle in which they celebrated and consummated the love which brought fertility to the land, but every year Tammuz died and had to be mourned. And he died at the time that the vegetation died. And then he came back. There are, there's documentation of this story going back 5,000 years, and it probably goes back many thousands of years before that, long before the Christian story of the dying and resurrected God came into, came into our, our canon. This is ancient wisdom that we carry within us and that resonates inside of us. Now you and I will probably not dance around a raging bonfire. We probably won't drive our chickens through two fires to make sure they continue to lay eggs. And sadly, we probably won't even dance around a maypole, although I want you to know I try to figure out a way to do that. I was even thinking, okay, the peace pole. Could we tie ribbons? <laughs> I have it bad, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe next year. But how will we celebrate this life? How will we celebrate the wisdom that is not just in our minds and in our hearts, but in our fingertips? The wisdom in the nerve endings of our feet as we touch the floor. I remember being on call one night as a chaplain and, and receiving a call in the middle of the night, it was probably one or two in the morning from, uh, from the nurses on, I can't remember if it was the cardiac ward or what ward it was. But there was a family in deep grief because the matriarch had, had just died. And one of her granddaughters, there were quite a few family members in the room, but one of her granddaughters was so distraught and her grieving was so loud that the nurses felt uncomfortable. I mean, this was clearly not their tradition. And essentially, they said to me, not in so many words, make her stop. <laughs> and I went into the room, and I, I, I saw this, this family and this young woman who could not 
let go of her grandmother's body. Her own body was grieving so intensely, I am quite confident she had no control over what she was expressing. I did not try to get her to stop or sort of calm her down, even though there's a part of me that can understand why some folks, perhaps other patients, might have experienced you know, some agitation with this. But I knew, and I'm grateful for knowing, at least in a part of myself, that this was this was her own body wisdom. So I approached and, and I did what, what I often did, which was to respectfully offer gentle touch. She accepted, and we remained connected for as long as it took for her to release this wave of grieving that her body was holding. And eventually she did, and her sobbing subsided. And we got washcloths so she could. And I'm sure later all of us sat together and they told me stories about this extraordinary woman who had lost her, her battle that night with, with life. And what she meant to all the family members. And more family kept arriving. They kept arriving through the night. And it was a powerful lesson for me. And that wisdom that sometimes we have to respect and we often don't listen to it. Often don't listen to it. So on this day, on, the, on this day when the Kentucky Derby and the fires of Beltane are all in the water, I invite you to listen, to go listen to that voice. You know, we often talk in Unitarian Universalism about what we believe, what we don't believe. We don't often connect with that part of ourselves that values the body. And it's it's a part of, you know, it's, it's a part of, it's a tension in our, in our heritage, the tension in the enlightenment. It's a tension between those who believe that the body is a suitcase. It's not. It's life. And sometimes it's messy, and sometimes it bleeds, and sometimes it gives birth, and sometimes it doesn't. But it is who we are. There's a colleague of mine. We're friends on Facebook. Her name is the Reverend Amy Beltane. I don't have not had the nerve to ask her. Did you change your name? <laughs> I will one day though, because I'm really curious. But she has been the president of the Covenant of Unitarian Universalist Pagans, and she writes really beautifully about this strand of our Earth-centered traditions. How would it be if menopause were sacred? <laughs> it would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> if play were sacred, always. And laughter. And dancing in your wheelchair. And eating popcorn with your friends and holding hands. 
What if every bit of our living and dying were sacred? And I don't mean the Christian definition per se. I mean the definition that says that which is worthy valor, reverence, and attention. Reverend Amy Beltane quotes Shakespeare's play, As You Like It. He says, and this our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues and trees, books in the running brooks, sermons and stones, and good in everything. Are there sermons in the stones around this building? Yes? Stones? What would those sermons be? The last thing I will share with you relating to this topic this morning is something very encouraging and life-affirming for me. And that is in the, in the justice-seeking communities in which I am grounded, particularly justice-seeking communities of color, we are increasingly reminding one another to affirm the beauty and value of our bodies. Because in this moment in history, our bodies are under attack, as are many bodies. It's our health care that is being taken away. For some of us, the, the colors of our skin determine whether or not we're going to be stopped by police, treated violently, or even deported. So we are affirming to one another the beauty and the value of loving our bodies when no one else does. Because that, this is where resistance can start. By loving the hell out of ourselves. I invite you as we leave today and go on our path for this week. Perhaps you will take a moment to hold out your hands and give thanks for the wisdom in your fingertips. Give thanks for the wisdom in your arms that can hold the whole world or your beloved. For the wisdom in your spine, for the wisdom in your years. Experience on this planet.